episode 45 of the Apex Vaulting Podcast. Uh, super pumped. I can't imagine I've already done 45 episodes. Uh, this September is going to be two years. Super excited. Uh, we have Becca Peter. Uh, some of you know her better as Becca Gillespie. She started Pole Vault Power. So pumped to have her on the podcast. Uh, Becca, thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit about your background. Like, What made you start Pole Vault Power? And I kind of want to talk about how important you as a figure are to the Pole Vault community because I don't think I would be the coach I am today without Pole Vault Power. Oh, thank you. Well, I started pole vaulting my junior year of high school. I was a gymnast, and I got girls pole vault was a new thing, so I got recruited mm. into that. Awesome. And then when I was in college in 2002, I started pole vault power, mm-hmm. and it just grew steadily for many, many years. Wow, yeah. So let me, let me ask you this, because it's very interesting. So you said you started your junior year of college? Um, yeah, yeah, the summer okay. before my junior year of college. Okay. So you started well, in college. Well, I, I should say my third year because I did six years of college. Okay, <laughs> that's okay. Um, so I, what I, I think sometimes, I, I talk to coaches all the time and athletes, and they seem a little bit scared to post. You know what I mean? They're, they're worried about the criticism. I, but I got to ask you, you had to feel so empowered that you started pole vault power, and I'm sure you had to deal with some some tough situations. I remember you would always have to kind of uh, almost discipline Alan Launder and DJ when they would get into their battles. Uh, but how empowering, how awesome must it have felt that you started something so powerful, and I can't imagine if you didn't do it because you were too scared. You know what I mean? Because like, I, I feel like there's a lot of people out there with information that would be so awesome, and I, I wish they would share, uh, but I feel like they're, they're too scared. What do you say to that person that might be too scared to post? Um, what advice would you give them? Hmm. Well, when I started Pull Ball Power, social media wasn't a thing, which is part of why it was so popular, because it was really the first... Right online gathering place that a lot of pole vaulters started going to. Um, So it was a little easier in some ways because there weren't as many people. But at the same time, pretty quickly, there was like a really good representation from the pole vault community. Mm -hmm. And very early on, it was like you couldn't talk about like anything you said about an elite athlete, it would get back to them because they were all reading the message board. Right. so kind of an early brush with that experience of, you know, people are actually reading what I'm writing and what's being posted here. Right, right. But yeah, if people are being scared, I mean, you know, it's a little different today because there's so many trolls on the internet, but I mean, I would just encourage people to to try, you know, like mm-hmm. if you stay quiet, then you don't, you don't get that communication with people and you you miss out on opportunities to learn. Mm-hmm. So I would definitely encourage people to engage in conversations and be part of the discussion. Um, just, you know, try to be try to be teachable, I guess. Like, if you're young and you haven't been coaching that long and you have some great ideas, like, get those ideas out there, but also be open to hearing what other people have to say. And, yeah. you know, maybe they've already tried that and it didn't work for them. Sure. And... You know, find out why why it didn't work because maybe you can just tweak something a little and something that didn't work for someone else. Maybe it's going to work for one of your athletes. Yeah, I and I think that's huge. I mean, I think. Having an open mind, I mean, you know, you mentioned young coaches. I think even, you know, and 
I still think most people view me as a young coach. I'm 37. I started coaching, I think, 2004, 2000, yeah, 2004. I started coaching. So it hasn't been that long. Um, but I mean, I definitely think as you get older, you kind of always have to keep an open mind and, and try to see how things work and, and listen to other people's perspective. I think the thing that, you know, almost, I don't understand why people are not more open. You know, because I feel like everything that I've said yes to, to at least try, it's been a learning experience and I figured something out. And so that's what I, I think. I think, you know, whether you're young or old, man, you post something, understand, yeah, you might get criticism and you have to be able to gauge it. Is this valid criticism that I should worry about? And now, you know, think about my system, my process or what I posted. Or like you said, you bring up trolls and like, I think that you just got to not worry about that. That's just part of it. You know, it's like, it's like being in grammar school and someone saying you wear an ugly shirt. That's just a bully. You need to learn to ignore that person. Um, you know, but like, yeah, I, I love it. I, th I think it's a great opportunity for us because when you started Pobo Power, yeah, social media wasn't really a thing yet, but it was... I really think it was instrumental. I, I told you before we started the podcast today, I, I tweeted out not too long ago, you know, who's a bigger influence on pole vaulting, Vitaly Petrov or Alan Launder? And I don't know. I think you can make a valid argument for Alan because I think his book, Beginner to Bubka, introduced so many people to some concepts and ideas that have kept them into the sport of pole vault for decades. And I think in a lot of ways for you, you know, if I said, you know, who's, who's more important to American pole vault? Uh, Stacy Dragila or Becca Gillespie, Becca Peter, um, you know, I think an argument could be made for you, you know, not trying to take anything away from Stacy. I think <laughs> Stacy's awesome, you know, well, uh, you know, but in very I, different ways. Right. I mean, it's, it's different perspective. I think, you know, athletes obviously are always just their performance alone is a huge inspiration and could get someone started. But what you did bring the community together, I think is so huge. And so I hope that when people listen to this, that they realize like, you know, maybe if you're a little bit scared, but you actually do have something you want to say or something you want to share put it out there because like you said too if you don't put it out there then no one hears your voice you know and having a voice is super important yeah definitely and I think it's just a life skill that you have to learn how to have a thick skin and mm -hmm. take criticism and just recognize when criticism is valid and when it isn't mm -hmm. and and also learning to have good boundaries and if you have a friend who doesn't respect your boundaries and is not being a good friend, I, I mean, sometimes you just have to maybe cut them out of your life or maybe just set up certain boundaries to <laughs> try and protect your emotions a little bit. But. No, I, th I think that's super important, too. I mean, that's an idea that I think, it, it, you know, a lot of people keep uh, friends in their life sometimes almost too long when it starts to become detrimental. The other thing, too, is sometimes people have trouble being honest when it's a friend. You know what I mean? It's like it's too okay. close. And so like, let's say just as an example, you know, a friend of mine posts a, a video of their jumps or, or their jump progression or whatever. Sometimes as a friend, it's hard for you to be like, hey, man, I, I think you really should be focusing on this because you don't want to hurt their feelings. 
Um, but it, it was funny. So I gave this analogy, and then I know we have like two very big topics to go over, so I, I will definitely go on after this story. Uh, but I wanted to get your thoughts on this. I used to do this as an English teacher. I would get kids to put their like rough draft paragraphs on the board, and as a classroom, we would go over them, right? And for me, I always felt like it was a great opportunity for especially that kid that didn't have the best paragraph to put it on the board because it kind of guarantees an A. Like if I'm monitoring the the revision of this rough draft, it's awesome to share. And I always said there there's three different people in that audience that are watching. And this kind of goes for social media, like right? The three different people that are watching. One person will comment because they just don't like you and can't wait to point out your mistakes. One person okay. won't comment at all because they like you a lot and they don't want to hurt your feelings. And then the third person, I I always try to be this person. Um, the third person will comment because they care about you and don't want to see you make the same mistake and they try to do it in a caring way, right? But what I always yeah. go over that I think is huge is who's actually, like, let's go, who's better for you, right? Like, obviously, I think we'd all agree that the third person, the person who's uh, maybe giving you constructive criticism and cares about you, that's the best person, right? But who's better, that person or the person that doesn't say anything? Obviously, that person. The guy who has good okay. intentions and gives you criticism, you know, versus the guy who is giving, or guy or gal that's giving you criticism, but from a negative viewpoint, like they just can't wait to put you down. Obviously, the good intention person wins, right? But here's the interesting one. Who's the better person? The person who gives you criticism and they're coming from a negative place or the person who doesn't give you criticism at all? Yeah, I think it's good to be able to have constructive dialogue with your friends and to, you know, be able to communicate if you think there's something that they could improve on. But obviously how you deliver that message is very important sure. because if people feel like they're being attacked, then they just sure. shut down and they're not receptive to anything you have to say. Right. And and look, I think everybody's at different levels. Like when I'm coaching, especially younger athletes, it's like everything is like very, very positive, you know. But I'm at a point in my life, like literally, Becca, if you were like Bronco, I think you suck and this is why. And you could be coming from the angriest place. I literally would be like, thank you. And I would think about it after the podcast and be like, okay, I need to change something, right? Because I, I have like such thick skin now that I don't care. I'd rather hear criticism than people not say anything to me. Like even last night, it was great to have Jeff Coover on because we actually, we had this discussion about Renault a little bit and, you know, we kind of had opposing viewpoints, but it was like, we were kind of able to come to like, uh, I wouldn't say a compromise. We just both were able to see each other's side and kind of see, you know, the positive and negatives. And so it was just great to have that conversation where sometimes people, you know, when they don't talk, you know, it's like, it's tough. You just think you're on that side, I'm on this side. But through the conversation, you can see that both sides have valid points, you know, and you kind of have to hash that out. That's why, that's why I love podcasts, um, you know. So, I don't know, just super interesting stuff. Um, yeah. Be, before, I guess, like, uh, well, I guess before we fall down this rabbit hole and start talking about something we didn't even plan on, uh, I know you want to talk about two things. One, we would definitely want to hit up safe sports, and then we were talking about Demi Payne, like it's recent news. Um, Demi Payne, you know, failed a drug test. It finally came out. It took about two years for all this to come out. What exactly, what did you want to start with on that topic uh, with Demi failing the drug test? Um, what sticks out for you the most out of that story? Yeah, so obviously this is really big news. We don't we don't see very many 
pole vaulters failing drug tests mm-hmm. and especially female pole vaulters. Mm-hmm. And then especially to have it be for steroids. It's not like something more. There's a lot of very minor ways you can fail drug tests. But this is a big deal. Right. Um, But I think it's important to remember that, like, I mean, Demi Demi Payne is a is a human being with feelings, and Mm. I there's no way that she did this by herself. So, Mm. like, yes, Demi has to take responsibility for her actions. I mean, it's not like she's a teenage athlete in East Germany where things were being done and athletes didn't even know what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this is, this is an injectable steroid. And so, and she was an adult. <laughs> so mm-hmm. at some point, yes, she was involved and aware of the process and she has to take responsibility, but I don't think she came up with this idea by herself. And I don't think that she was doing all of it by herself and no one in her life knew about it. Right. So, You know, and all of this is, it's not, I hope that people don't take this all as, like, we're just attacking Demi, you know. It's very possible to be like, you know, look, I think what happened here was horrible, but, hey, like, I still, I think Demi's a great mom. Like, she was still very inspirational to me, and even if you take away the steroids, there's still things I like about her. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think sometimes, and I think this is sometimes the issue with some stuff on social media is it ends up being a little bit too black and white, and there's a lot yeah. of gray. You know what I mean? Um, I, I mean, for one, I, look, I, I think it's it's very easy to see the pressure that a young athlete can go through when they're trying to make that climb. And I think especially in a sport like track and field where you have such a small window, you know what I mean? When you think about something like an Olympic year, you know, you feel that pressure that it's got to happen now, you know, because you don't know, like we were talking about, you know, just how hard it is for, you know, post collegiates to keep training because it's, it's tough to get access to, to equipment and facilities and this and that. So you could almost see where someone like Demi would make that choice. You know what I mean? And I, and I think having open yeah. conversation about this so that people can understand what's happening, you know, that's, that's so huge. You know, because yeah, hopefully... Yeah, and there, there is so much cheating in our sport that I think it's very hard for elite athletes because they feel like everyone else is doing it. Mm-hmm. And so I think athletes who take banned substances feel justify it by saying everyone else is doing it Mm. so this is the only way this is the only way I can reach my full potential and everyone else is doing it so it's okay because it's a level playing field but not everyone is doping right (laughs) right it's probably more athletes than we would like to think because of course we all want to think that everyone is clean and that steroids and all that stuff are in her past when clearly that's not the case. But at the same time, like, no, you don't, you don't have to cheat to become an elite. Right. Um, yeah. So as far as what's happened in her case, so Demi, um, failed an in-competition test at the 2016 USA indoor championships. And this mm-hmm. is, she placed third in that competition. And it, that was, I was at that meet. Mm-hmm. That was one of the most amazing competitions of all time. I mean, that's, everybody was just jumping out of their mind. Right. Danny jumped 485. 
490, Sandy Jump 495, like, yeah. it was amazing. Yeah, and yeah. And the, only the top two made the world indoor team. Um, so, you know, Demi was pretty bummed afterwards that she had jumped so well and still didn't make the team. Right. Um, but yeah, so it was an amazing competition. And obviously, USADA, which is the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, right. they were at the meet and they always test. And exactly how many places they test kind of varies a bit from meet to meet. But I mean, if you're top three, you should be getting tested. Right, right. <laughs> I yeah. would hope so. So yes, like this this test wasn't a surprise for Demi. She competed at USA Indoors the year before and was tested there as well. So clearly she knew she would be tested. Um, so usually it takes a few weeks um, for the test results to come back. And especially the top two were going to World Indoors and that was like a week later. So they probably rushed to test those athletes first. Right. Um, and so they, her, te- her first sample might not have been tested until a few weeks later. And right. so, um, so in this process, they, you know, they always split the sample into two. And then if the A sample comes back positive, they test the B sample to make sure there's not like contaminated equipment or right. a contaminated sample. Um, and so obviously in Demi's case, the B sample also came back positive. Mm-hmm. But in her case, this was unusual. It's very unusual to have it take over two years for it to be public that an athlete failed a test. Mm-hmm. Um, so she appar- apparently she got a lawyer and took it to arbitration. And okay. the somebody anonymously emailed USADA and claimed that the drinks were spiked at the U.S. Indoor Championships. Hmm. Which like they're ta- they're talking about like unlikely. are they talking about like like she went out and had drinks or meaning like at the actual competition like the Gatorade or the water they're drinking? What, what? Yeah, at the actual competition. Um, oh wow, that's so, that's crazy. <laughs> right, that's a pretty big allegation. Yeah, um, and from well, and, what and I've I would heard, I would think if she tested positive, then I mean, wouldn't have other people have tested positive at the meet? You know, what I, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like there would be more than just her, you know, I, I don't know. It just sounds weird yeah. to me. Right. One would think, and I don't know, I mean, I suppose it's possible that, I mean, I guess we'll see if they announce any other positives, but if there was anyone else, you would think they would have announced them at the same time. Right. Um, and my understanding, what I've heard from someone who was there, is that the athletes, if there was like a cooler with sealed water bottles and that was what the athletes were taking so it wasn't like you know there was a giant Gatorade cooler that everyone right. was drinking from or like you know somebody gave Demi a bottle with her name on it right right <laughs> like I think it was just random and the bottles were sealed so I don't know how one could have been tampered with and then the actual steroid she was taking I don't think it's water soluble. Like it's something that's injected. So if you right. just put it in a bottle of water, I would think that you would taste it and notice something was off. Like I don't know if that's a very plausible thing. <laughs> Nevertheless, you thought it was obligated to investigate it and apparently they turned it over to law enforcement. Yeah. Uh which I'm guessing would have been the DEA. Mm-hmm. Um 
because USADA has worked with them on other cases. Yeah. I mean, and, so, and just, I, I mean, just from stories that I've heard, I think, you know, again, I don't know about why it took so long for this, but just for people listening who maybe aren't familiar, you know, there's good reason for them to kind of investigate this stuff because it's so crazy. Sometimes even you could be buying supplements, you know, from vitamin shop. And if, you know, the, like I've heard stories about creatine where it's like, if you got your creatine and it came from a company where like they do other things in their factory, like deal mm-hmm. with steroid type stuff or banned substances, if they don't clean the vat well enough afterwards, you could get a tainted supply. And so what they'll, some athletes do, they'll keep little samples of like the, the supplements that they use so that if they do test positive, uh, WADA or USADA could go look at their sample and they look at the label and they get the lot number. So then they'll go in and get yeah. other samples to see if like, cause you know, obviously someone could tamper with their own supplements, but they'll go and check the lot sample and just double check. So, I mean, I would imagine the process does take a little bit of time. I don't know if, uh-huh. you know, two, two and a half years is understandable, but go ahead, continue. I'm sorry. I just wanted to yeah, get, get it doesn't. <laughs> Normally for that type of thing, it's not quite, it's not that long, but yes, it does take time. If you have the money to use, to fight USADA, um, it, it can take time to work through all of the issues that may surround the case. And yes, contaminated supplements are a huge issue in all sports. Um, mm. There's definitely a fair number of, of positives every year that are proven to be from contaminated supplements. However, that doesn't absolve athletes of responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, they still, you, typically in those cases, they get a reduced sentence. So, like they won't get a huge ban, but they still have some sort of sanction, mm-hmm. um, even though it wasn't their fault. You thought of stance is kind of like, well, supplements are contaminated a lot, so maybe you shouldn't take them. <laughs> Um, But right, but I feel like that's unfair of USADA too. I mean, we we kind of talked about this a little bit yesterday. There was apparently a couple summers ago where USADA sent out a memo saying that if you travel through Asia, don't eat any of the meat because it might be contaminated. I mean, you're putting an athlete in a really difficult situation there. I mean, what are you supposed to do? I I mean, you know, nutrition is so important, and now you're telling me I can't even eat meat? I mean, like, what, am I supposed to live off of lettuce? Like, I don't, do do you know what I mean? Like, it's, I I feel like it's it's very difficult for athletes. You know what I mean? It's not easy. Yeah, and I actually, a lot of the cases that have come out of USADA in the past few years, I actually really disagree with, I disagree with a lot of the regulations that USADA has, and a lot of the sanctions that they've come out with are, they're over really petty things that really weren't performance enhancing. Mm-hmm. I'd rather see USADA's efforts be posted on people that are trying to cheat, and right. people that are benefiting from what they're doing, and that's the thing in Demi's case. She wasn't, as far as I can tell, I mean, there may be more information we don't know, mm-hmm. but as far as we know didn't use the defense that it was a contaminated supplement mm-hmm. and I don't there most of the contaminated supplement cases it hasn't been steroids and especially for an injectable steroid like that mm-hmm. that would be less likely to be a you know in a supplement compared to something else that's processed that's powdered or whatever mm-hmm. um, so yeah I definitely have a lot of issues with some of the sanctions you thought have had, but in Demi's case, it really seems 
like a very legitimate case and she seems like there's a good chance she benefited from it. I mean, her, um, and I, I guess we'll, we'll get into the next section. So I'm not going to pretend I'm an expert on Demi's, um, history, but just Mm -hmm. as an overview, yeah. She, you know, Demi's, Demi's dad was an elite vaulter back in, like, the 80s and 90s. Yeah. And, um, Bill Payne. Mm-hmm. And he, he definitely failed at least one drug test. Um, he, in 1990, at the U.S. Indoor Championships, he failed a test for, um, pseudoephedrine, which is in cold medicine. Okay. So that's kind of a minor thing to fail a test on. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been rumors that he failed another test, and it's a little, I haven't tracked that down yet, and it's a little tricky because it was before the internet and right. um, before USADA existed, so there was, well, things were not as uniform well, you, you as know, far as sanctions. You know, that. it's funny because before this podcast, because I, wa- I wanted to bring up a lot of things, but it's hard to find out some information even on some of these regulations. Like USADA stuff is pretty clear, but I was even like trying to figure out stuff like uh, like what are the limits or the numbers in like the NFL for testosterone? Because it's like I, I feel like a lot of people don't even understand those numbers. Like I, I was talking to someone the other day who, who's familiar with this and works in the medical field, and you know they I don't again the the, the numbers that you usually hear is like a thousand count of testosterone is like very very high. Like if you have a thousand count, you're probably like a really, really good athlete, but most men are walking around. Like I was like, I was like very hopeful. I was like, well, like I'm 37, I work out. So what do you think? I I have a 700 level. And the guy was like, uh, no, probably 500. I was a little sad, uh-huh. uh, but, but like uh, I've even heard that the NFL numbers, and again, I couldn't find it on, on the internet, but it's like they, their limit is much higher than USADA's. Which is crazy oh, yeah. because what I kind of – this is what upsets me a little bit about the, this whole conversation sometimes with track and field is like, look, are there people cheating? Absolutely. Should we be getting rid of people cheating or catching them? Yes. But let's not pretend like the other sports are squeaky clean. I mean if you think track has a problem with steroids, I don't – like do we even bring up the NFL? Like what's going on there? You know what I mean? Right. So it's like yeah. that that becomes a huge issue. Um, you know, for me is like I just you know, what's fair is fair. You know what I mean? If you say we have a problem, then some of these other sports have bigger problems. But I feel like when we see our portrayal, let's say on ESPN Sports Center, it's like they would want to talk about the Olympic sports, like there's a huge issue with this, and I'm not saying there isn't, but it's like there's just as much issue in some of these other sports. There's know? definitely a double standard between yeah. professional sports and Olympic sports. Which, mm-hmm. of course, Olympic sports are also professional, but you know what I mean. The sports right. that are not under Wada's umbrella. Right, 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 um, right. So going back to Demi, yeah. um, obviously, you know, her dad Her dad was a very good pole vaulter. And her dad was a very good pole vaulter in an era where a lot of athletes were taking steroids. Um, it's just, you know, the, test, the testing wasn't very good at that point, And a lot of athletes w- were doing it. And so I'm not trying to throw out names like this athlete was and this athlete wasn't, but mm-hmm. her dad was of an era that a lot of people were doing it and, you know, there have certainly been rumors around him back well, in the day. Well, have you but ever... But anyway, fast forward to you, today... Well, have you... I'm sorry, just a quick aside. Uh, have you ever sure. read the book Speed Trap by Charlie Francis? No. 
Oh my goodness, you should read that book. Um, it's Charlie Francis with Ben Johnson's coach. Ben Johnson won the 1988 Olympics and broke the world record and then tested positive for steroids. He was one of the big names that got caught, the first big name. And uh, Charlie Francis wrote this book, and he, he talked about, he didn't mention any names, but he talked about how uh, a lot of the pole vaulters at the time in the 80s, that when they heard there was testing, some of them would just like no height and leave real fast. Okay. So it's like there's yeah. definitely stuff going on back then. I mean, and if you yeah. look at some of the the like records, uh, especially on the women's side of sprinting, a lot of them are still from like the 80s, early 90s. You know? Yes. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Um, so fast forwarding to today, you know, you just can't you can't dope today like you did back then. You mm-hmm. know, the testing is just better and all that. Mm-hmm. So. Which, of course, there's just, I mean, other things are being done today. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so Bill Payne has a daughter named Demi, and she start, She was pole vaulting in high school. And so I certainly had heard of her, although I did not, I didn't follow her career very closely. But she jumped a little over 13 feet in high school. She jumped four meters, uh, which is very good for a high school girl. And she went to Kansas. Mm-hmm. And she did two solid years there competing for Kansas. And, um, you know, in Kansas, as a lot of you know, has a, a very good pole vault program. Yeah. yeah. Um, very well regarded in the pole vault community. Um, and so she improved there. She ended up jumping, you know, just under 14 feet. Um, and then she got pregnant and moved back home and right. transferred schools. So, you know, the following year, she had a baby, and which is not an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she started vaulting again, and I mean, it's kind of, you know, she said her dad had her back on the runway, like, six days after she gave birth, and I'm like, I could barely, like, walk six days after I had my right, daughter, right. so, uh, I mean, that's amazing that she was able to push herself when she's going through a very challenging stage of life. Um, so she started training again, and then I, I think competed like once or twice in the spring, but then that summer in 2014, she actually jumped in a number of beach vaults and even like a youth meet, and she started PRing a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, she, I know she did 14-6 at one of the beach vaults, and I, I'd have to go back and check my notes. I think she actually jumped 15 feet, but she was basically jumping as like an exhibition at a youth meet, so it was long pegs, and it wasn't really valid for like statistical purposes, right, right, right. and she wasn't trying to have these marks count, like right. she was posting this stuff on social media, but she wasn't like, it wasn't like anyone was submitting results or anything like that. Right. Um, the main reason I knew about it is because... USA Track and Field puts out a book every year called the Fast Annual, and it has list performance list for the mm-hmm. year. And I do the pole vault list for that. Mm-hmm. And so I had heard rumors about Demi jumping high, and so I was trying to figure out, you know, what did she do? And so I'm finding all these meets where, like, she's jumping really well. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the following year was 2015, and that was her huge breakout year, and she improved to... I don't remember, 15-7, like high, you know, yeah. getting in the mid to high 15s, and it was amazing, you know, all these head-to-head competitions with Sandy Morris, and they were both breaking the collegiate record, mm-hmm. and then Demi ended up getting on the Bowerman ballot, and like, wow, you know, that was a really, 
inspiring story. And then the right. next year, 2016, she kept improving and she jumped 16 feet indoors and then failed the drug test. And right. so in hindsight, I think that that improvement is suspicious between when she left Kansas and went back home. And the reason I do is because, I mean, she had she had access, she had years of, like, good coaching and good resources. And right. it's different if a kid, you know, comes out of high school and they haven't had much coaching, they haven't had much pulls. Like, I think Kylie Hudson was only, I don't know, like an 11, 11 6 vaulter out of high school, and then she went to college and got coaching and pulls, and she improved a ton her freshman year of college. Right. But that totally made sense because... Right. You know, she had access to things she didn't have access to before. And right. likewise, when you look at Jen Schur, I mean, she jumped 15 feet, like, just over, like, a year and a half after she started vaulting. Right. But she hadn't even, she was already a very talented athlete. She just, hadn't been yeah, before. hadn't been jumping. No, yeah, and we we were talking about that before. I mean, it's it's different when s- some people are go- coming from like let's say a bad situation and going to a good situation. But it's like going from a good situation to a good situation. It's like okay, well then what produced this PR? You know, and I mean that that's the tough thing. I mean, I look. I feel like also this happens in Povelton clubs too, and this is why I think some Povelton clubs run into trouble because initially if, if a kid comes comes in, they're going to have a huge PR year, two, three feet sometimes, because they've never had coaching before, and the reason the right. kids the kids aren't ready to plateau, and that's the thing, like, once someone's been introduced into a system, you're not going to keep PR in three feet every year, I mean, at that point, I mean, I don't know, you right. might jump 35 feet by the time you finish college, you know, but <laughs> it's like, so that's the thing, it's like, I feel like that's... People have to understand once you're in a system and you've been kind of acclimated, that progress is going to slow down. If you could PR by like, I don't know, a couple percentage points every year, that starts to become huge at a certain point of a person's career and also physical development, meaning like they're not a little kid anymore. You know, it's like they're not going to grow six inches in one year. You know, it's like you're dealing with an adult male or female and now they're going to have to chip away slowly. So, yeah, I mean, it's... yeah, like you said, looking back at the situation now, you could see where it's like, okay, that's, you know, that's interesting, you know, that that, that happened like that. Yeah, because it really seemed like she just got stronger and faster and she was hitting huge pulls. And, I mean, maybe her technique improved a bit, but everything about the philosophy that was coming from her group was about hitting big poles. And in practice, she was getting huge taps, which I don't like tapping at all, but I'm also, I I mean, for elite vaulters, like, if that's what works for them, whatever, I just don't like, I don't like tapping being presented to kids as, like, this is the way to succeed. Um, Right. Well, well, I I mean, and like you said, I think you can never say never. There's always a situation where maybe that, does come into play but just to go off of what you're saying i mean at my club you know i have a lot of youth i i even have actually masters and stuff like that i have the whole gamut but if you have 10 people in the runway and you're standing there tapping everybody into the pit one you definitely don't see the jump there's no way you're watching the runway and the jump accurately if you're standing there tapping so that's not good um and then it's like what happens when you take that tap away 
You know what I mean? That's the always fear I have as a coach. Now, now you've developed a crutch for the kid. And for me, I like to eliminate crutches. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't like, Oh, you need to have spikes on. Now we're wearing sneakers today. (laughs) Like you need to get comfortable (laughs) doing things that you're not comfortable with. You know, I don't want to add to those crutches, you know? Yeah. For me as an athlete, I have had various phases where I had coaches who tapped and I struggled mentally to Mm. try and vault without someone standing there and it it took a lot to get over that so yeah i think well even if you're not shoving people in it like some coaches just they just want to stand there it's like a comfort thing for the coach and you know maybe they're just giving them a light you know i'm just guiding them in the pit i mean some coaches swear oh it's not even it's not even doing anything it's just a safety thing but i really feel like if you have the kid on the right pole and the right grip you shouldn't need to be right there as a safety yeah. thing. Well, I mean, yes, freak accidents always happen. Sure, but sure, of usually course. in those cases, cases you being there isn't going to help anyway. Right. And what I would also add, I mean, if you really want to talk about safety, you need to teach athletes to be able to be aware of pole speed and swing speed. I, I mean, yeah. I sometimes think that some of the kids that I've coached for three, four, five plus years, they have such good awareness that that's why sometimes we can go up a grip in competition. And you know what? They can tell a takeoff if it's not going to work and they just ride it into the pit, you know? And that's because they've developed that awareness. And that's what really makes a safe vaulter, not me standing at the end of the runway and pushing them in. You know, but I, I mean, mm-hmm. I guess to kind of reintroduce the topic that we were kind of talking about before we went on that, that, uh, path. But like, even, you know, it's funny, like thinking about, you know, performance enhancing drugs, a lot of times that could be a crutch for an athlete. And I mean, we've seen people mm-hmm. who have performed very well and then all of a sudden, a huge drop off. I mean, the performance enhancing drugs, a lot of times the mental aspect of it, you know, the confidence that you gain, you know, and now you take that element away. I mean, look, going back to what you were saying, like eighties and nineties where we don't know for sure, but there was definitely prevalent uh, PED usage. We did see a drop off at one point in kind of the vault. And then it's like, now we're getting that resurgence. And maybe part of it was that for a while, you know, guys not using PEDs weren't able to compete because they needed that crutch, you know, and now we're seeing people do it, hopefully, you know, uh, PED free, you know? Yeah, and I think a huge problem in our sport is that a lot of the foundations of coaching, like the books and the philosophies that were written about coaching, mm-hmm. were written around dirty athletes mm-hmm. and a lot of athletes, if you try to coach them that same way, they're going to get injured. And that's one of the big things, you know, performance-enhancing drugs can help athletes stay healthy. They can help them recover from injuries faster and just generally, like, letting them train harder before they get hurt. And so a lot Mm. of athletes have tried to train at the level of other athletes and they just get hurt. And then they're like, well, why why can't I do the things that this other person did? I must just be a wimp or whatever. Mm-hmm. But maybe that other person was taking something that helped them do it. Yeah. You know? and, and I guess um, just because I don't know how much else you want to talk about Demi, and I know we have the other topic, but just to go off of that, what you're saying, I think one of the issues that I see a lot of times in track, especially when I talk to coaches, and regardless of PED use or not, what a lot of track coaches tend to do is like, they're like, oh, wow, look at Usain Bolt's workout. Oh, I'm going to do that with the high school kids today. 
And what they don't realize or respect is like, uh, you know, a a famous name is like Michael Johnson. Everybody loves looking at his 400 meter workouts. And it's like, what you don't realize is Michael Johnson built up to that. It took, you know, a decade, two decades worth of work to build up to that kind of workout. You can't just do that. You know, I mean, I, even at my club, I mean, I have vaulters who are, you know, with me for a few years. They might be in college. They could literally vault. You know, and my college sessions are separate from my from my club sessions sometimes. And for reasons like this, some of my college guys they can they can vault for two and a half hours. You know, and that's because they've built up that capacity level, the amount of work that they put in. But it's like if you try to have a young middle school kid do that, oh my god, they can't. They literally can't. Like you have to focus more on drills. They can't be just doing full vaults the whole practice nonstop. You have to build up to that work capacity. You know, and I think that's something that needs to be thrown out there too. You know, it's like, that's great if you just read Michael Johnson's workout or you just read, you know, Sergey Bupka's workout plan from, you know, the year he set the world record. It's like, you're talking about an adult male who's been training for, since he was 10. And now you're trying to put that into like, even if you try to take his workout and give it to a 21 year old collegiate male, that's just not going to, I don't think that's going to work. You know, you can't just copy and paste, (laughs) you know? Right. Yeah, so I don't have much more to say about Demi specifically, but just generally speaking, Mm. I think one of the things that I learned early on, and honestly, it it was because of starting pole vault power, Mm. um, because I quickly, the athletes that I admired, like, I I quickly began to just get to know them as as people, um, which was amazing, but I also learned that you kind of have to compartmentalize, like, the things that you respect about a person. And so a lot of kids mm-hmm. engage in a lot of hero worship, and they see yeah. an athlete, like, for, you know, it might be an elite vaulter, and they're like, oh, this person's amazing, I want to be like this person. And nowadays with social media, I mean, goodness, you can get on Instagram, and, you know, some athletes like to share stuff, and some athletes don't. Not everybody is all over it, but a lot yeah. of our athletes are. Mm-hmm. Um and generally, most of them are very, very positive about it. Mm. But it's, I think it's good, you know, if you think someone is an amazing pole vaulter, like, you know, respect them for being an amazing pole vaulter, but then maybe the way they live the rest of their life is not necessarily the way that you would want to live your life. You know what I mean? Right. Like, they might not be the person that you would want to go to for relationship advice or for religious advice, but you can still love them as a pole vaulter. Right. It's well, like, well, you, you know, know I, I was telling you before the podcast and just just to think about, you know, how to plan your training, how to plan your jumping. I told you about, you know, Walter and, and Craig knows this. He would be open about it. But Craig Van Loon, he jumped 17-8 for me, but... He really didn't lift much. He really didn't sprint much. He just, he vaulted a lot. He also didn't watch his diet, but it's like he was just that level that he could get away with that. If some young kid designed their training after his, they wouldn't really get that far, you know, unless they had the natural talents. And just like you're talking about other aspects of life, just because someone jumps high doesn't mean they're a good person. Doesn't mean they're a bad person either. But it's like, you know, those things are up, up in the air. Like, those are all different things, you know? Like, I, that's why I even, you know, I, I've seen stuff on social media, you know, where, you know, and again, I think if people are happy and they're content with how things are working in their life, awesome. Just keep doing what you're doing. But I know a lot of people would love to be more popular. And then it's like, 
they don't get back to their fans. You know, there's like unanswered comments all over their posts, you know, and it's like, you know, there's stuff like that. So it's like, like what you're saying, it's like, well, you know, just because someone jumps high doesn't mean now that they're an authority figure on some other aspects of life, you know? Yeah, definitely. And it's, (laughs) and actually a lot of people just take really different approaches to social media and different things work for different people. And, you know, like some athletes are big into the sex appeal and Mm. it makes them popular. And like, that's great. Like if that works for them and they feel comfortable doing that and that's what they want to do, like you've got a great body and you want to rock it, like go for it. Yeah. But if you're a high school girl who's feeling kind of insecure, like don't feel like you have to be like that person, you know, like there's a lot of different approaches that you can take to things. Right, and and I think I think it kind of another idea that I always talk about is like it comes back to being honest. You know, if you're if uh-huh. you're being honest and presenting yourself the way you are, that that always one you're going to find a lot of people who are down for that, even if they might not be wanting to live your way. You know what I mean? So to use uh-huh. your example, like sure, if 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 you want to show off your body, you work hard. That's awesome. People appreciate that. That's really why you're sharing, you know? Um, and even if maybe I don't want to show off my body, I mean, I, I tend to like, I only wear a tank top at beach ball and I won't even take my shirt off at beach ball, uh, just cause I don't feel comfortable. But you know, for other people who like, oh my God, I saw Matt Scheffler at beach ball coaching, you know, and he's got a shirt up guy looks jacked and he's, you know, that's <laughs> awesome. That's great for him, you know? But you know, I think as long as we're always being honest and presenting our true selves, you, you'll probably be safe. You know what I mean? It's just, I, it's when people try to, to hide stuff. And I guess even with PED use, I mean, that's what it comes down to, right? Like there's people hiding and they're not being genuine. You know, they're doing things that, that really aren't, 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 aren't cool. You know, it's, yeah. the, you, you know, it's, it's just, it, it's that hidden stuff that always, you know, kind of bothers me, you know, um, when I look mm-hmm. at some stuff in sports. Yeah. Um, and I love, I love, Sandy Morris and I love Jen Shirt. They they're both on Instagram and they're they're really really different and they're just yeah. they're really really different people because mm-hmm. I know them both as individuals and they're mm-hmm. so different. Yeah. But I love like I think they're both very genuine on their social media mm-hmm. and you know just two totally different types of people. But they both love animals. <laughs> they yeah. both have like a whole lot of pets mm-hmm. and it's so cool that you can get online now because. I mean, yeah, like, when I started pole vault power and when I started getting in the sport, like, that wasn't there. Like, I didn't, I mean, the only things I knew about Stacey Dragila was just whatever I read in track and field news right. or in the newspaper or something. Like, I didn't have, and now it's like, with most athletes, you can just find out all the things they like and you can see their adventures in Europe when they're going to competitions and... It's really cool that that fans can be so connected with their idols, but they, you know, it's important for kids and for parents to help kids keep everything in perspective and and to sure. remind kids, like you know, what they see on Instagram may not be like that may not really reflect who that person really is or how they how they really feel. 
And, you know, just because this person does something doesn't mean it's okay for you to do it. Right. Well, it, that type of thing. it was interesting. I had Tiana Bartoletta on the podcast. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with her. She was the Olympic champ in 2016. I am, yeah, she's jump. great. And what well, I love that Tiana said, she goes, you know, that's the thing. Sometimes people want to present this kind of image of like, oh my God, it's so glamorous to be a track athlete, but it's not always 100% genuine. And she's like, mm-hmm. what's a bigger piece? And she talked about how, you know, sharing her struggles in the past year or so has allowed her to help other people and she was able to visit with someone in England a girl that was going through similar things and and she was able to help and it's like yeah I I just feel like you know as long as you're telling your story and you're being honest that can be so helpful and like you said if you're a parent of a young kid you have to help them navigate that stuff because even just like in general forget about track social media Uh everybody on social media tries to present this idea of like I am living the best life and if you're someone who's like kind of maybe got lower self-esteem, not feeling great about yourself right now, you could easily look at social media and be like, wow, I am crappy. Like, I am not doing a good job in life. And the thing is, you have to realize that people are sending kind of mixed messages on social media. And just because it may look like Sally is awesome and boys like her and she's going to parties, uh, maybe she's not really happy. You know, and, uh-huh. and maybe she's presenting a certain image and you should, you should be happy with what you have, you know, and maybe you don't live that lifestyle, but you, you should be happy with the life that you do lead because everybody's different. You know, everybody finds happiness in different ways. I mean, I'm super happy to be a pole vault coach every day. Like, I feel so lucky, but I'm pretty sure I could find a person that would be miserable, <laughs> you know, if they were doing this every day. So, yeah, I've, I've actually, I've tried it. I've, <laughs> I've done it, and it, it wasn't for me. I love mm-hmm. pole vaulting, and I'm so engaged with, in, with the sport mm-hmm. in so many ways that coaching brings me out. And mm-hmm. I couldn't do it every day. I have enjoyed, you know, when I've done high school and stuff, I've really enjoyed that. But I I moved to an island mm-hmm. five years ago, and they don't have pole vault. They do have yeah. a track team. Mm-hmm. And I I don't really miss coaching that much right now. Like, I just mm-hmm. have so much else going on in my, in my life, and my kids are yeah. young. That, yeah, like different, you know, different things work for different people. And, and within sports, there's so many ways you can contribute. And coaching yeah. is super important. But there are other ways. Sure. And, and, you know, it's so funny. I mean, like, even like you're saying, at different points in your life, your goals change. You know, what you want changes, and there's room for that. Um, and then I remember one time sharing an email with Alan Launder. Like, I, again, I, I can't say enough good things about Alan because I just, I feel like he contributed yeah. so much. But there's an email I shared with him, and I was like, kind of venting to him about some things I was dealing with coaching wise, just, you know, maybe some athletes that were being maybe a little bit ungrateful and just dealing with the emotions, you know, as the ups and downs of a season. And Alan goes, that's why I coach camps. You get to be the grandfather that comes in, brings candy, high five everybody, and you're gone before anybody starts crying. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, I see that. You know, so it's it's just amazing. Yeah, and and like you said, there's so many different ways to be involved in this sport. Um, you know, so there's definitely other opportunities. Um, but d- before we go too far, I, you know, I, I'm sure we can talk about a million other topics. And Becca, I feel like we could do a bunch more podcasts together talking about a bunch of different things. <laughs> but I know, I know you want to talk about safe sport as well. Um, yeah. So what- well, let me actually talk about USADA a little bit first. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, so I just want to kind of, a lot of people don't 
don't know much about USADA because you don't really need to know anything about him until it hits you. Mm-hmm. Um, but USADA is the U.S. anti-doping agency, and so they do the drug testing for sports. But it's really important for people to know that the NCAA has their own drug testing. Right. And they are not signatories to the WADA code. So WADA is the World Anti-Doping Agency. Right. And the NCAA is in their own universe. And right. whatever happens in the NCAA, 99% of the time, it stays in the NCAA. So mm-hmm. athletes fail tests in the NCAA and no one ever knows. They right. do not tell USADA or WADA. And so things that would get people banned, um, Slip through the you know, cracks. they happen there. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's a huge issue. And one of the frustrations for me is that USADA has been very openly critical of Russia, mm. which I totally support. But I would really like USADA to be openly critical of the NCAA and even asking, you know, possibly Congress to get involved and basically require the NCAA to share information with USADA about college athletes who are in Olympic sports who are failing drug tests. And now, and there's some stuff in college like that's illegal there that's not illegal with USADA, so like marijuana. You right. know, if you... If you're in college and you fail a drug test for marijuana, that you're going to have some kind of issue with your school, whereas you thought it's not going to care anymore. Right. Um, but they need to be sharing information so that even if you thought it didn't like ban people just based off an NCAA test, you thought it needs to have the ability to get in there and test a kid. And if they've if they've failed an NCAA test for steroids, they're still going to fail that test like a day or two later if you saw to test them themselves. Right. Um, Because right now, so the way drug testing works, um, I mean, I mentioned before, you know, at our USA Championships, the top athletes are drug tested there. Right. And they they have the ability to test any athlete in the meet. So if you're in the meet... In theory, they can pull you for testing. And all of the athletes at USA's, when they exit the competition, they have to go, they have to go through the mix zone. Mm -hmm. And then the drug testing people have access to them. So they, the chaperones are like watching them in the mix zone. And then after they do their interviews, they escort them to drug testing. Yeah. Um, and then as far as getting tested out of competition, there's the out of competition testing pool. Right. And typically, USA Track and Field tells USADA who should be in that pool. And mm. the problem is, as far as I can tell, and from talking to people, in more recent years, it could have been different in the past, I don't know, I don't think USATS is really making a ton of changes to the pool until, like, the end of the year. And the problem is you have college athletes in January and February that are, like, running, like, world-leading times. Right. And they've never had a drug test in their life. Right. And it's so important that you start testing those athletes early because they have the athlete biological passport. Right. Um, and that's been, a, that's been huge because what that does, instead of making everything about, like, you know, is this substance in your system, the biological passport 
monitors changes over time. Right. And so it's like, especially good with like blood doping and stuff. Right. And so, for um, example, like going back, we, t- we were talking about testosterone before. Let's say instead uh-huh. of just testing someone and being like, oh, okay, they, they're too high. What they do is they, they can kind of get a baseline, you know, okay, this guy usually walks around at an 800 level of testosterone. And if all of a sudden he hits, even though it might be within the legal limit, Right. Uh-huh. Let's say, I, and I don't know what the legal limit is, but let's say like fifteen hundred, and that falls within legal. It's like, well, wait, he he bumped up a lot. Or even if uh-huh. they dip down too low, now they can interview them and see like what happened, and maybe do further tests. So that's where uh-huh. the biological passport is so huge because. If yeah. you don't have a, a somewhere a frame of reference, it's kind of like what we were talking about before. It's like uh, suspicious performances, right? Like it makes sense if a kid in high school who didn't have coaching goes to a good college and now PRs two, three feet. Like that's understandable. Okay. But if a kid sure. goes from a good situation to a bad, uh, a good situation and they PR three feet, now it's like okay, well. How did you PR three feet? Like, what changed? You know. So it's like okay. the same thing with the biological passport, except it's going off of levels in your blood, and so they kind of have that history on the athlete. Yeah, and even if it's not a suspicious improvement per se, I mean, anytime you have athletes that are hitting that top level in the world, they need to start getting. They need to right. be getting them in the. start testing them soon and not waiting until the end of the year. Because the problem is most college athletes don't do the USA indoor meet. Mm -hmm. So their first test is usually at the USA outdoor meet, which means they've gone January to June. And now here's the problem that most people don't realize. And I have done a lot of research on this, and I actually spoke with USADA's legal counsel, Bill Box. Mm-hmm. Um, he was at the USATF annual meeting this past year, and I asked him this point blank, and he confirmed this. So USADA has, like, the so obviously if any athlete is in the testing pool, then USADA can test them. And if you're in the testing pool, that's where you have to give whereabouts. You, you have to tell USADA where you're going to be every day, and you have right. to provide a window for testing and all that. But they do have the authority to test any USA track and field member really at any time. It's just very rare. Right. They would not normally show up at your house to test you because there's no reason to. And when they don't have whereabouts, it's like they might know your address, but that doesn't mean you'll be there. Yeah. And, you know, drug testing costs money and all that. So Right. And there's no reason, like, let's say they showed up at my house. I I mean, I don't jump regularly. I did jump 12 feet in in January last year, but that's even if I was on something who why would anybody care you know what I mean not that I was I was clean but (laughs) you know it's just it doesn't matter and it would be a waste of money to test people who are that far under the world numbers but yeah I mean I think for people who are getting close to those marks that that's someone that should be tested because the the other thing that I would bring up there if you don't test someone until like let's say Olympic trials or outdoor USAs. The thing is, okay. like, and I've listened to a lot of podcasts. I, I listened to one with uh, Victor Conti from Balco. I don't know if you remember that name, um, but he was oh, yeah. involved with Barry Bonds, Marion Jones, Tim Montgomery. Okay. And the thing that he discussed is like, look, if you fail a test at, let's say, outdoor USAs, 
You're kind uh-huh. of dumb because you should have cycled right. off, not even just for testing purposes, but performance-wise, you kind of want to get off that stuff before you go to the meet. And he talked about stuff like flexibility, and I mean, I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but that's what Victor Conti said in the podcast. So it's like technically that person could have been on stuff all year, then cycled uh-huh. off, go to Outdoor USA's, and still perform well, and we wouldn't know whether they, they, they cheated or not. Right. And so here's the issue. USADA cannot, if you are American mm-hmm. and you're not a USA track and field member and you're not in the testing pool, they cannot test you. Oh, wow. So with college, so the way USA track and field memberships work, they all expire at the end of December unless right. you purchase a multi-year membership. Right. And so college athletes typically don't, now, of course, there's exceptions to every rule, but typically, right. college athletes don't join USATF until right before Outdoor USAs. So they typically join in June, and they typically just get a one-year membership. Yeah. So from January to June, most college athletes, even if USADA gets a tip about that athlete, they do not have the authority to test them. Right. And, and that's I, a huge problem. Right. It, and it definitely is a problem. I just want to explain, too, because for people listening who are like, wow, that sounds fishy. The thing you have to understand, too, it's like for college athletes, unless they're going to USAs, you know what I mean? They don't really have a reason to join USATF because insurance-wise right. and everything, their competitions are all through the college, and they're, mm-hmm. they don't really have a reason. I mean – a lot of the kids in my club, and you know, we'll kind of get into this on the, the next part that we want to talk about, mm-hmm. but my club hasn't been USATF for a couple of years because I need my own private insurance, I'm an LLC, and all that kind of stuff, and it's just, mm-hmm. we kind of talked about this yesterday a little bit, but a lot of my kids don't join USATF until like a beach vault or something, you know what I mean? So they'll join mm-hmm. USATF for a competition that's USATF, but even a lot of high school kids end up not joining USATF because they're jumping or competing through their high school and there's no reason to join, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like that's yeah. why some of this stuff uh, happens, you know? And this makes us different from basically every other country because in pretty much every other country, they don't really have scholastic track. Like, they don't they don't really have very many school-based track programs. It's usually right. all by clubs. And right. so all of those clubs are normally under the umbrella of their NGB, their national governing body. So, you know, from youth to masters, they're all, if you're in the sport, you're always going to be a member. And it's just in our country that we have this weird system where you're not. And so that's the thing for USADA is we've got world-class athletes achieving world-class times and for a combination of reasons, USADA is often not able to test them. Right. And so uh, one thing that could be done to help, I really would like to see USA Track and Field be much more robust in adding these athletes to the pool. Mm-hmm. And I've had people tell me, well, they're just in college and they can't keep up with whereabouts and blah, blah. And I'm like, that's BS because athletes of that caliber anywhere else in the world would be expected to do yeah, but, that. But here's the thing. So, I, I would think for a college athlete, the whereabouts are even easier because they're constantly with their team and they're usually on campus. You know what I mean? Or they're away at a track meet. So it's like 
I feel like that's a little bit easier. I think the whereabouts start to become more difficult for someone who's post-collegiate, who's like on that second tier, who they might have to move because of a job, and so they're constantly updating their whereabouts. And you, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like it would be easier. Um, yeah, but it's just a personal responsibility issue. Well, sure, sure, but I, I, I'm just saying that saying it would be hard for them to do the whereabouts because they're in college. I, I feel like that's not a good answer. You know what I mean? No, I, I agree, and. I can definitely, I've definitely known college athletes that just lack a certain level of personal responsibility. Sure, and yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it would be hard for a lot of college athletes, but that is part of what it takes to be an elite athlete in our sport. And yeah. so, you know, coaches and colleges, whatever, like they need to be supporting those athletes and if they're getting at it, and there, and there are... You know, there have been college athletes in the pool, obviously. Like, Sydney McLaughlin, obviously, mm. she was in the pool, and she right. was tested by USADA, you know, several times this year, mm. even at her school. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's certainly... And that's the tricky thing is, like... And they don't publish a list of who's in the pool and who isn't, but they do publish the athlete's test history on the USADA website, and so you can start to figure it out because it, it'll tell you what quarter they were tested in and how many tests right. they had, and you know which meets are testing, so you can kind of cross-reference and you can kind yeah. of figure out who's being tested out of competition and who isn't Right, right. for the most part. Yeah. And that's where at the college level I've started checking this stuff, and I've just been appalled by the number of college athletes I've seen with huge performances that have never been tested. Right. And, yeah. So, it, now, the thing is, once you get in the pool, it's hard to keep cheating. I mean, we have this gap before athletes are being tested, but once you're in the pool, it gets a lot harder. And that's well, but, the thing with Demi. That's because I had conversations with people back in 2015, and it was kind of like, well, you know, a lot of people thought she was doping, and it was like, well, I guess we'll just have to wait and see, because if she is, it's going to be really hard to keep doing it. And sure enough, she got caught. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that's definitely something that, it, you know, I think it's almost like it, it says a lot about our sport, because track is kind of... I understand we do have professional track athletes, but largely our sport is not professional. Um, there's a lot more people doing it that aren't at what would be a – well, okay, so I, I have a tough time with that word professional. I think if you're making a living doing something, you're a professional. But a lot of people use that word professional, and they're not really professionals. They're like at the elite level, but they're not actually making money. So it's like it's that's the problem because we have so many people involved in this sport that aren't professionals in the sport, whether it's as an athlete, a coach, whatever, this is why some of this stuff goes so unchecked, you know, because it's like, you know, it's, it's hard, it, I don't know, it's just a hard system. And then the NCAA is a huge organization, which I'm sure they have their reasons why they would like to keep things to themselves, you know, and it's okay. like, this, this becomes a very, very tough thing. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know yeah. if there's a simple solution out there. I, I don't know if it's like just something where once a person hits a certain standard, maybe USATF makes them a member, you know what I mean, mm -hmm. instead of them having to join, and then that would, you know, open the things up. I, I don't know. I don't know what would be a, yeah. a good solution. I, I really have to use the bathroom, Becca. <laughs>
But if you're ready to start talking about Safe Sport, I know we talked about it a lot yesterday. Maybe you want to just start talking about that. I'll be super, super quick. But, uh, you know, <laughs> start talking about that. I'll be sure. right back. Okay. So, Safe Sport. So, what is Safe Sport? Safe Sport, um, the whole Safe Sport journey probably began about 15 years ago when the Olympic sports movement finally got to the point where there was so much abuse happening within sports that people started to recognize, hey, we need to do something about this. But of course, it's been a very long journey for, of getting, making sports safer. And this is all sports, it's not just track and field. So over the years, USA Track and Field has done, done a number of things. Um, they've adopted, in the past, they had a code of conduct uh, for coaches. And that's evolved into our current safe sport regulations. And then about 10 years ago or so, we finally started doing background checks for youth coaches. And so things have been moving forward, and the U.S. Olympic Committee was sort of um, pushing a lot of specific things. And then they developed the safe sport training, which is online. And then eventually in... March of last year, 2017, the Center for Safe Sport opened. And that is an independent organization that investigates and adjudicates claims of abuse. And specifically, they generally only take things that involve sexual abuse. So if you have, like, emotional abuse or physical abuse, um, usually the NGBs are still the ones that have to investigate and deal with that. Um, and so this, and then the center is also handling the education and outreach side of things. Um, so safesport.org is their website. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, <laughs> I don't know if you covered this. Yeah, I'm back. Sorry. I, I really thought I was going to make it the whole podcast, but I just couldn't anymore. I shouldn't have had iced okay. coffee. Uh, but, uh, what about like, so now people like, uh, me and I know we were talking about like, it, there's a lot of public clubs out there that maybe aren't USATF. Um, we don't have that USATF affiliation. What can we do to maybe become a part of safe sport? Because I, I think, you know, you brought up a lot of good topics and we were talking about it yesterday and I've talked to a lot of people. I think it's great, especially for me. I, I, you know, I'm very interested in growing my business. You know, I, I would love to have several locations, you know, in the coming years. And, you know, I, I just want to make sure that the people who are coaching for me, I kind of cover this base because for me, I mean, I went through education. So I was an English teacher in high school. I did my background screening back then, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm very versed in that. But for people who are young, who are maybe getting into coaching, it, it would be a good idea to kind of go through the safe sport training. Um, how can they do that? that all pole vault coaches get safe sport certified through USA Track and Field. Um, the nice thing about it is parents can go, once you've done everything and it's all process and stuff, mm-hmm. parents can go to the USA Track and Field website and they can see that you've done it. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, you know, if you've done a background check with your high school or whatever, Parents can't actually see the right. results of that. They just have to assume, okay, well, he's at the high school, so he must have done it. Right. But they don't really know. You get into a lot of assuming. And so if you if you jump through the right hoops, and it is a little bit of a process, 
Um, but it is a very public way that you can communicate to the par- your parents and your athletes that, you know, I'm committed to being a safe coach and, you know, I'm committed to providing a positive environment and all of that stuff. So mm-hmm. the way that you do it, um, and you, and, you mentioned that a lot of clubs are not USATF clubs for various reasons, and that's totally fine. Like you don't, you don't have to register your club to do this. You can just do it as an individual. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first step is joining USA Track and Field, mm-hmm. which is thirty dollars for adults. Yeah. Um, and then, which <laughs> it's usually not hard, although the US, I. I'm so apologetic. Like, the USA Track and Field website is the worst, and it hasn't been working very well. And it's something that, I mean, I personally have been very critical of the organization on, and I've, I even spoke at the last board of directors meeting, and I brought it up. Yeah, like, I, I, I've had athletes, I've had athletes who, you know, they were trying to register for USATF, and it would be, like, website down or something like that. And I know. You know, and but so that assume, makes it difficult. let's assume for this conversation mm-hmm. that things are working, because yes, I yes. have to try and remain optimistic yeah. that at some point this will get better. Mm-hmm. So the first step is joining USA Track and Field. And then the other two parts of the puzzle are the background check and the and then the actual safe sport training. Mm-hmm. And so the background check I think is sixteen dollars and it's good for two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it goes through kind of a central system that all of the NGBs are using now. Mm-hmm. And then the safe sport training. Once you have USA Track and Field membership, there's. I don't remember off the top of my head, but there's a way. I don't remember if you do it through the USATF website or through the Safe Sport website. Um, I actually, my, I, I did mine two years ago, and a lot okay. has changed since then, so I actually need to do it again. Yeah. Um, but you take the Safe Sport training, and it is free if you're a USA Track and Field member. Okay. Um, and it's it's a bit over, I want to say it's like about an hour long. It's, you know, it's... A, it's a very thorough training, mm-hmm. but I feel like it's so important for several reasons. Um, one, it is important for coaches to be aware of like what the latest rules are because mm-hmm. coaches need to understand that safe sport considers there to be an imbalance of power between a coach and an athlete. So mm-hmm. as far as safe sport is concerned, like it's not okay for coaches to be in relationships with their athletes and just because an athlete turned 18, it just it, it's still not acceptable under the Safe Sport Code. Okay. So even if something is legal, you know, you might not get arrested for dating your 19-year-old athlete, right. but that doesn't mean it's okay. Um, and so being familiar with but that, just, I think, but is... But just to ask a question, sorry. Um, sure. So let's say we're talking about... I don't know, a grad assistant at a school, he or she is 24, athlete is 21. No, I mean, it's considered, it, it would, that would be considered an imbalance of power. Now, the issue is whether or not someone's going to make a complaint about it. So, I mean, I would tell any grad assistant, like, no, you absolutely should not date your athletes. Right. In reality... You know, maybe you'll get away with it as long as the athlete doesn't complain. But if they decide, if things end badly and they decide, 
Yeah, yeah. You know, this athlete was my coach, and I thought it was a good idea, but in hindsight, I don't think it was. Mm-hmm. Then there's a lot of potential issues there. And schools almost always have rules against that anyway. Like, even if you're a grad assistant and you're the same age as the athletes, mm-hmm. schools are still going to have policies against that. No, I I, so. I mean, I only just bring it up uh, just because I, I, I feel like, uh, you know, there's like a spectrum of things that can happen. You know what I mean? And I just, again, like we talked about in the beginning, it's like I don't want to just paint things black and white all the time. Because, I mean, even in our sport, I mean, there's so many coaches that are married to their athletes, you know, on each gender. You know, so it's like I, I feel like especially with older people, like that kind of stuff happens. I mean, but we're kind of ta- – we're more focused on youth athletics, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's important for people to take the training and to understand and – I think coaches should be aware of the safe sport code and safe sport is now if you had if you had two adults who entered a relationship like especially if maybe they weren't a coach athlete when their relationship started you know they could certainly make the argument that there wasn't an imbalance of power Mm -hmm. and even if you look at coaches who are married to their athletes like there's a wide range of circumstances yeah yeah of course some of them some of them seem totally healthy and maybe some of them aren't safe sport isn't really they're not out to like get people they they're responding to complaints so Mm -hmm. if two people are happily married Safe sports not trying to go right. around and figure out which coaches are married to their athletes and try to get them in trouble. No, yeah, They're yeah. trying to deal with reports of abuse that come in. Yeah, but I yeah. think the thing that's important to remember is, like, yes, it's a spectrum for sure. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have, I mean, there's definitely, and there's definitely overlap with criminal behaviors here. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the no, no, no. I mean, athlete is, you quickly get into criminal stuff. Mm-hmm. But it can still be, I mean, if you're a college athlete and, you know, the grad assistant who's only a couple years older than you starts hitting on you, like, you know, it might all be fun and games at first, but then maybe there's negative consequences for you. Like, maybe all the other girls on the team like shut you out of their social circles because they think you're just sleeping your way to the top and you're getting special favors and it can turn into a very unhealthy thing and I think it's important to recognize that even if it's not like the worst abuse in the world that it still can be an abusive situation and it's still important to recognize people as victims if if they are yeah Um, so yeah so in terms of becoming certified you know taking joining USATF taking the safe sport training doing the background check and it can you know it takes a few weeks for the background check to clear and um it can sometimes take a few more weeks for USATF to like check the right buttons to make you show up on the website Mm -hmm. but I I definitely think it's worth doing and the other thing I think that's so valuable for it is that it helps anybody who takes the training to recognize the more subtle signs of abuse. Yeah. Um, because things like grooming and, you know, you just kind of, maybe you get a little bit of a bad vibe about something, but you don't. 
you well, don't actually see anything blatant happening. So. Right. I mean, we, we talked yesterday about, you know, you know, I used examples of like athletes that have come to my club from other sports and you could tell that even if it wasn't, you know, sexual abuse, that emotional abuse, uh-huh. like you talk about grooming that happened where, you know, some of these kids are coming from other sports where like you could tell there's emotional damage. Like they think the only value yeah. they present is their performance and that they're not worth anything unless they, they compete at a high level, which is crazy. I mean, that's not, you know, I, I don't know for anybody out there that that's coaching, you know, that's not why you're out there. And then, I mean, obviously like I, I, on the other end, like, you know, people who are sexually abusing kids and stuff like that, like, you might not, like you said, you might not notice. Like I, I would even say, like for me as a as an owner of a business. Now, I, like I said, I've had training because of my educational background, but I could see how other people it would be very hard for them to pick up on that. Like I, I have like a really high emotional IQ, and I can tell when things are not right. But for a lot of people, this will be the first introduction they have in in some of that information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And it's also just really hard. We want to give our friends the benefit of the doubt. And so mm-hmm. in the pole vault community, like, you meet a lot of coaches, and these are people I like. Because, like, you know, you're a pole vault coach, and that's kind mm-hmm. of a weird thing to do. And <laughs> you don't always get to interact with that many other pole vault coaches. So, right. you know, then you go to Reno to the pole vault summit, and it's like, oh, I'm with my people. I right. love these people. These are my friends. They totally yeah. get me. Right. And so then if you hear allegations against one of your friends, yeah. the natural instinct is to just be like, there's no way that could be true. Because I know this person, they would never do something like that. Right. And, I mean, and you think, you know, on it's like you don't want it to be true. You know, you'd rather, yeah. you know, it not be true. And so sometimes people turn a blind eye. You know, I, I think okay. also, to be honest, I think if some people have like, financial gains or losses depending on something like that a lot of times unfortunately people put money before people's safety and health and you know it's just like you have to kind of be open and honest about this stuff and and people you know need to protect themselves you know yeah so and i think for parents listening um safesport.org does have a free training that's specifically for parents and there's a number of other online programs that are also free that offer um, advice for parents, so just kind of things to watch out for. Um, and it's, I would really encourage parents, like if, if a coach that your child is involved with or that you know is accused of something, I would just so like to encourage parents to be really careful what they say because even if your child wasn't a victim, it doesn't mean that someone else's child wasn't. Mm-hmm. And it's, unfortunately, in some of these cases, like maybe your child was a victim and they haven't told you yet, but you get these parents that passionately defend this coach because they've, you know, they've developed a bond with this coach. They've worked with this coach for years and they've, you know, their child has been so happy working with them and they, they can't believe it's true. And they're worried that, you know, their coach is going to get banned and he won't be able to coach anymore. Well, and, or she, and, I, and I think sometimes, um, I think sometimes too, what happens is like, you know, if, if let's say your kid is jumping high with a certain coach and you put so much ownership on the coach being able to get that performance that uh-huh. you kind of, you start to overlook, uh, overlook other things. 
You know what I mean? You, yeah, you start definitely. to be like, ah, that's okay. I mean, I, I even like on a, let's say a little bit lighter end, you know, people overlook stuff like timeliness, you know, professionalism, you know, stuff like that. And it's like now, I mean, but now we're talking about this end where it's like, look, I mean, you gotta, you gotta open your eyes. You gotta, you gotta be able to see what's happening, you know? Yeah. And, and parents need to keep in mind that like, say there's an allegation and they don't believe it. If they go and are like attacking the victim and say, oh, the victim must be making this up, blah, blah, blah. I can't believe they would make up these allegations. Mm -hmm. Maybe if your child is abused someday, they're not going to feel comfortable telling you because they're not going to think that you believe them. And I think as a parent, and even as a, I mean, even as a coach or a teacher, like someone who, you know, has the trust of a lot of kids, but especially for parents, one of the most important things you can do is develop that trust with your kids that they feel comfortable knowing that if they were to ever tell you something like that, that you would believe them. Because that's one of the number one reasons that victims don't come forward is that they don't think anyone will believe them or that they just don't, they don't think anybody will think it's that bad. I mean, especially if you're talking about maybe like an older high school girl and a younger coach and maybe they got involved. You know, there's some people who don't think that's that big of a deal. And uh, it can be hard to it's, come forward. It's, and, well, and it's, it's, hard, it's hard for me to think of that as okay, but... Yeah, I mean, there's people out there, I guess, you know, and I I think, too, I mean, some of what you're bringing up, I mean, that's just good parenting advice. You know, I I think that sometimes, you know, parents, unfortunately, I've seen parents who, you know, that kid is so afraid to fail in front of their parents, you know, are Mm -hmm. so afraid of getting in trouble that now if something like this happens, like sexual abuse, that, yeah, they are scared because they feel like they did something wrong. You know? Yeah. And so, I mean, as a parent, just like, uh, and you know, as a coach, it's like you want your child to feel like they can fail, that that's okay, and it's a learning experience, and that you're there for them. And then more so, if something mm-hmm. bad happens, that you're there to support them, not to look at them and go, oh, my God, like, why did that happen? You know, it's like make them feel like yeah. it's their fault, you know? Um, it's it's just wild. I mean, like, it, it just, it, you know, I mean, we could probably go on another hour, um, you know, talking about this topic but i think for the the safe sport training you know and being able to do those background checks i i mean i i think that's a big deal you know i mean i i know even for me i i think about it as a business owner you know people who are coaching you know how do i you know convey to parents that you know people know about this stuff and they're trained and they're good you know and this is i i to me it, it sounds like an easy way you know what i mean and yeah, i've been thinking about like a pole vault, like, like you are, you know, you're, you run a pole vault club and maybe you want to bring in some assistance or like, mm-hmm. especially, you know, it's the summertime and you're doing camps or whatever. Mm-hmm. You have a responsibility to do some due diligence. And if you don't, like if something happens to a kid in your club or your camp and you didn't do any sort of background check or anything, you could be in trouble with a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. So, Doing the safe sport training and having all your employees and coaches and and even, like, if your parent volunteers who are chaperoning kids at meets or something, having all of them do that it not only protects the kids, but it protects you as a business owner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just a, it, and it's much more accessible. 
accessible than some of the other programs out there. Mm -hmm. And then it just sort of has that public transparency of it's on the website so all the parents can see and then they don't have to wonder. Because it, it can be awkward as a parent to ask right. the coaches. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, I can tell you, before USA Track and Field had background checks, there were sex offenders coaching in clubs. And I know of one club that they brought in assist, an assistant coach, and it was great at first. And then things got a little yeah. behavior was erratic. And I don't think there was any, like, I'm not aware of any actual abuse that I, happened. I, but I think they, too, that person was actually a sex offender, and the parents did, hadn't been notified. And then they finally, you know, they ran their own background check on him. And they hadn't known. Yeah. I, I think also just kind of like we were talking about the parents and stuff like that. I know for me as, as a business owner, and I know it sounds easy. A lot of people, if they just hear someone coaches pole vault and they need help, they're like, oh, they'll open the doors and let the person coach. For mm -hmm. me, it's like I, I don't let anybody do anything in my building unless I know them. You know what I mean? It's like they, yeah. they, have, to, they have to show me that – you know, they're responsible people. And I mean, literally everybody who coaches for me has gone through my system. I've known them for years. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not like some, some random person walking in through the door. And I think that's just, you know, part of like, you know, due diligence, you know, now obviously like yeah. as things grow, I'm sure I, I will probably end up hiring people, but they'll, you know, have to somehow be integrated in the process and this and that. But, you know, yeah, I think background checks are huge because then, mm -hmm. you know, at least you're doing the best you can. I mean, obviously a background check yeah. doesn't prevent someone doing something in the future. You know, anything can happen. It's a, pe it's but, a piece of the puzzle. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. You know? Yeah, and it's and that's one of the disadvantage. One of the things that worries me a little bit of all of these pole vault clubs that are operating outside of USA Track and Field. Like, mm -hmm. I totally understand. Like, it costs money. You know, to have your club be part of USA Track and Field, I totally get. It costs money. It's a pain to register the practices for insurance. It's a pain to jump through all the hoops. But the disadvantage is when all of the clubs are operating outside the system, there's yeah. no there's no accountability. Um, yeah, I'm, and so that's where having having all the coaches do safe sport anyway, even if they don't have to, you know, it, it makes them covered individuals under the safe right. sport code, and then they do have that accountability. Yeah, and I mean, look, we can go on another hour, and I would certainly love to. Um, but I'm going to have practices coming in soon. Um, but I did just want to add with that. It's like, yeah, w w again, I think the safe sport thing is great. And even more so than the cost, I mean, I just think a lot of times with USATF, and I've heard this from athletes, I've heard this from people who coach, it's just they don't really see what they're getting in return other than being able mm -hmm. to compete at a meet. You know, and so, right. you know, that's, that's the thing that I think is tough with USATF, you know, is like, you're not, you're not getting much for, for registering for it, you know, and it's not even like, you know, let's say something like CrossFit where it's like people who register for CrossFit, it's like you get to, you know, you go to this great CrossFit regional open event, you know what I mean? Something like that. And I just, I feel like more and more, I mean, I, you know, I, I was telling you a little bit about the event I had this summer. I mean, we had 100 competitors, 130 spectators. There was a DJ, music. It was, like, awesome. and so much fun. And then it's like I go to USATF meets in this in this area, and it's like if there's five people jumping, that's it. And, like, the meet is, like, dead, you know? So it's, like, stuff like that. I just, you know, I think that's, that's what kind of 
you know, hurts a little bit for USATF and why maybe even at the collegiate level, why more people aren't registering unless they get to outdoor USAs and stuff like that. Um, it just, right. I think it's, we're in a tough part in this sport. I, I feel like we're somewhere in the middle. We have this long tradition in track and field, you know, and I don't know what the future is going to bring, but we're in this middle ground of where, even though we're such a long and traditional sport, you know, we have long history, we're not at the level of some of these other sports that actually do have a system. They do have a lot of things going on and it's, you know, kind of growing, you know, I just uh-huh. feel like we're in this kind of weird middle ground, you know? Um, yeah. Was there anything else you wanted to add? I think we covered most of it. It yeah. was really good to talk to you. Yeah, no, I, th- I think it was awesome. And uh, you don't have to hang up. I'm just like wrapping up the podcast. But I do want to uh, thank you again for being on, Becca. I think you have a wealth of information. Uh, you Ever since you started Pole Vault Power, I mean, I think you've made a huge impact on, on our event, on our sport. Um, I know so many people, not just me, are are thankful. So thanks again for being on. Um, Do you want to maybe shout out any of your Instagram or Twitter or anything like that if if you want people to follow you? Yeah, Twitter is where I put out the most information. Mm -hmm. I love Twitter. I know not everybody's on it, um, but yeah, on on Twitter, I'm Pole Vault Power. Mm -hmm. And... um, I've always, I mean, I'm on there pretty much every day, like mm-hmm. retweeting and tweeting stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Instagram, I'm also Pool Vault Power. Um, okay. Unfortunately, I, I'm just not at that many meets anymore. Right. So I don't have that many photos, mm-hmm. <laughs> like current stuff to yeah, share. Yeah. So I do try to get on Instagram and like, you know, keep up with people and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't been putting out that much content on it mm-hmm. um and then facebook i have a page and i have a profile and i tend to just put more stuff on my profile honestly mm-hmm. um facebook.com slash pole vault power is my actual facebook profile and then um <laughs> facebook.com slash pole vault power page is the mm-hmm. page because yeah. the timing of that all worked out weird yeah thank you facebook <laughs> um yeah, and I actually, uh, we mentioned Alan Wander. I actually still have Beginner to Boobka books and DVDs. Awesome. And the platform I was using on my website to sell them, like, it's not up anymore, and I need to switch it. Mm-hmm. I need to get them back up. But if anybody does not have a copy of Alan Wander's book, it's amazing. Yeah. And I highly recommend it for every coach. I mean, even if you disagree with Alan on certain things, the book is such a valuable resource and it has so many pictures and just really helpful progressions and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can always send me a message on Facebook or Twitter and we can talk about if you wanted to buy one. Awesome. Um, they do, they do still exist. I promise. Yeah. No, I highly recommend um, the book. I know, I know a lot of coaches that once I've started the podcast, I've mentioned the book and, and they've somehow managed to get themselves a copy. I don't know through you or whoever. Uh, but yeah, I highly recommend it. I mean, and just go to Twitter, Povil Power. You can send Becca a message. Um, yeah. You're super awesome. Also, getting back to people, which is great. Um, just to add, at the real Apex Vaulting is our Instagram, Apex Vaulting on Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter. Um, ApexVaulting at gmail.com is a great way to reach me if anybody has any questions or comments. And thanks for listening.